Let's pray together. Father, we want to stop and acknowledge who it is that we are singing to, praying to, listening to, and that is you. You who are far above and beyond all that we could imagine. You are God. You are the only self-sufficient being. You are the only one who from all things have come and all things are going back to. You are the beginning and the end. The reason, God, we want to acknowledge that is twofold. One, because it is important for us to give credit where credit is due, to glorify you. But it also is important to acknowledge that you are self-sufficient, but we are not. We need you. And so God, we rightfully ask you today to help us to shine the light of the glory of your grace into our lives. God, we know there are people here today who don't know you. We're so grateful that they are here. We pray, God, that you would work in them today to know you. You would shine into their hearts. But God, we also know there's a lot of us that do know you but we need you to continue to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know the hope that we have. And so God, we ask you to do that today. God, as always, I ask you to help me to communicate this in a way that is honoring to the one we are talking to, but God is also helpful to all of us. So as we open your word now, God, we pray by your spirit, you would fill us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter one. It's where we've been for the last several weeks now. I believe this is week five. We are working through the book of Ephesians. Our plan, Lord willing, is to preach chapters one through three through the end of this year, and we always take our 21 days of prayer and fasting in January, yes, and then we'll pick back up, Lord willing, into Ephesians chapter four through six. In the first three chapters, as I've told you several times now, references what God has done. Those are the indicatives. This is what God has done. And so we're in this kind of intro chapter, if you will, where Paul, we just gotten out of the longest sentence in the entire Bible, all right? Verses three through 14, it is one sentence, as I've told you in the Greek, and I've confirmed it is the longest sentence in the Bible. And so, as I always say, it'd be good to memorize scripture. And yes, you can remember the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, two words, all right? But you may also wanna make it your commitment to remember, to commit to memory the longest verse in scripture, verses three 
through 14, not verse, sentence, multiple verses, but the longest sentence in the Bible. And Paul, in that sentence, as we took three weeks to discuss it, is discussing what God has done in us. What God has done in us. As we were talking last week, if you were here, he worked in us. He saved us. Now what we're gonna do in the last part of Ephesians chapter one is look at verses 15 through 22. And this is where Paul now is gonna kind of wrap up this intro. So we'll close out chapter one today where he talks about how he prays for them. And there's two specific things that you're going to see that Paul does in this prayer. And it's instructive uh, for us really to teach us how to pray. And in teaching us how to pray is very, very helpful for us to understand, well, if this is what we're praying for, then this is what we should desire as well. So let's go to Ephesians chapter one. I'm gonna show you verses 15 through 16 first, and then we'll stop and chat about it. Paul says, for this reason, that's the title of this week's message, for this reason. Now, whenever you see a sentence that starts like that, you can know it's looking back to what he just talked about because you should naturally ask yourself, for what reason? Just like if you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it? You guys are so smart, all right? Thanks for paying attention, all right? I can clock out after this is over. So you see, okay, this is what it's there for. Same idea, for this reason. You say, okay, for what reason? And this is what he's gonna tell you. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So not as they're looking back, he's looking forward. I've heard of your faith. Now he gives credit to where credit is due for their faith, which is why he says this, look at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now we have to look at the words that he's using. In fact, I mention this all the time, how much I love prepositions. And as you're studying the Bible, particularly if you're in our small groups, because in our community groups, we work through the text that is preached upon. And we have a very simple thing that we use called REAP, which is R-E-A-P, read, examine, ap uh, uh, apply, all right, apply, pray it, all right? So you read it, you examine it, and well, in the examining, you should look at these prepositions because they tell you a lot. They tell you the direction of things. And notice he says, I thank God, or I give thanks. I never cease to give thanks for you. Notice he doesn't say, I give thanks to you. He doesn't say that. Because he's not giving thanks to them. He's giving thanks for them. And what's implied in the verse and this is why he starts with, for this reason, is he's giving thanks to God for them. In fact, let me just show you a quick reference verse, Romans 6, 17, you have to turn there. You might wanna write it down, but I do have it on the screen. Likewise, Paul says this, but thanks be to who? To God, let's try that again. Thanks be to God, now watch this, that you were once slaves of sin, you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So he's describing salvation. 
You used to be slaves to sin. You used to. Now you become obedient to or from the heart. But who does he give thanks to for that? To God. This is important. This is the whole argument we've been trying to make for the last several weeks. Our salvation, 100% by grace, it is to God that we give thanks for what he's done in us. He's done it. So if you're taking notes, here's my first point. We give thanks to God, another preposition, to God for you. We give thanks to God for you. Now, it's important to understand this because if their faith was a result of their choosing or their actions, he'd be thanking them. I'm giving thanks to you. You made the right choice. He doesn't do that. He gives thanks to God because it was God's working that enabled Paul to hear about their faith and love. He says, I never cease to give thanks for you, for what God has done in you, because I'm giving thanks to God. So those prepositions show direction. But there's another thing I wanna point out here. It's interesting that Paul says he does not cease to give thanks. Now that word, does not cease, what do you think that means? It doesn't stop, right? Now, this is when you're reading this, and if you're anything like me, you're like, for real, Paul? Like, you never stop doing this? Let's say it in the positive. I'm always giving thanks. You read that and you're like, bro, that sounds like all you're ever doing is giving thanks. You mean to tell me you're always giving thanks? You're not gripping like a little bit? You're not like giving thanks most of the time? I mean, Paul, come on. I would understand that in the worship gathering, yeah, 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 you're giving thanks. But when you leave the parking lot and it's crowded out there, you're giving thanks? You're like, Paul, I know y'all didn't have cars back then, so you don't know what traffic is, and you definitely don't know Atlanta. But never ceasing What's interesting is I don't think the word means in the sense of like literally at every second of every day, he's giving thanks. I don't think that's what it means. The idea of he does not cease means he doesn't put an end to it or a stop to it. What it means is he keeps on doing it in the sense that he makes it a rhythm or a habit of doing it. He hasn't stopped doing it. It's, I don't think it's the concept of like, at every second he's doing it, but he has a habit of doing it. Does that make sense? And the reason why that's important, and it's amazing to me, how science finally catches up with the Bible, because scientists have now figured out 
one of the best ways to have a healthy brain and to keep your brain elastic. And if you know what that means, that, that means pliable, stretchy. It's not rigid. You know, whenever you, whenever something's new, it's flexible, right? I don't know if you've had a baby, but one of the things that amazed me when our babies were born, especially right after they came back out of the womb, like their foot was like, like, I can't even do it, right? Like, it was like all the way back to their leg and their hands, they were like, they're so flexible, right? Because obviously they were in their mother's womb. It gets kind of tight in there. They're all, you know, and that's why babies like to be cuddled and wrapped up, you know? And as you get older, like, it don't move, right? I've never thought so much about stretching in my life. It's like, hey, people want to do something. Like, if I'm going to work for, you know, 30 minutes, I'm like, bro, hold on. I got to put it in. I got to stretch. I got to, you know. Well, do you understand you can do the same thing for your brain? I love brain science. We talk about it all the time. And you know what scientists have figured out? The best way to keep your brain healthy and elastic, literally rewire your brain, is to practice gratitude, to practice gratefulness. Because if you're practicing gratefulness, it's almost like your brain was designed for this, almost. Where, watch this, and Paul is praying this. Let me ask you a question. In your prayers, how much time do you spend expressing gratefulness, giving thanks, or is it just a gripe session to God or about somebody else? See, I love that Paul says, I don't put an end to giving thanks. I don't put an end to that. I'm always giving thanks to God for you. And this one, you hear me say, there is always room for gratefulness. No matter what you're going through, you can give thanks to God for what he's working in you. You can always be grateful for that. And I love that Paul, when he was talking to the church at Ephesus, and if you know anything about that church, in fact, we'll get into it in this book, they were having some problems. This is what makes me laugh when people are like, I just wanna be like the New Testament church. Have you read the New Testament? These churches were jacked up, y'all. And people always go to Acts 2, 42. Yeah, that's right when it happened. That was right after Pentecost. And for like a little while, they were kicking it. I mean, they were, whoo. But the New Testament, I mean, the church at Ephesus, if you read the book of Revelation, what's the song, our new song, I love you, what was talking about? Jesus has this to say to the church at Ephesus, you've lost your first love. So Paul is writing this letter because they got some issues going down. But even though they got issues going down, Paul says, I give thanks to God for you. See, this is a good lesson for us because you may have some people in your life that you, let's just say, are less than grateful for. (laughs) 
that we can learn, you know what? I can still thank God for what he's doing in me. And I'm gonna give thanks to God for what I want him to do in them. I can still give thanks. Now let's go to verse 17. The first thing he prays is giving thanks. Here's the second thing. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. So now this is a prayer of intercession, all right? Paul's praying for them. That he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I don't know about you, but you read that and you're like, I don't really pray like that. I mean, that's a big old fat burger right there, right? And what I mean by that is that's a lot of meat. All right, if you can't understand my analogy, sorry. I, 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 that's a, I, as my son orders from Whataburger, that is a triple meat burger. Because if one patty is good, three is better, right? I mean, that's, I mean, listen to the words he says here. May God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Have your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the, awesome. that's some $5 words. Paul, it's almost like Paul is praying theologically accurate prayers. Almost. And we can learn from this. There's a couple things I want to point out here that can teach us, watch us, how to pray for others, how to intercede. First, he says that God may give you. God may give you. Notice, this is something they can have, but God has to give it. So I'm praying that God may give you. And there's two things he says here. Spirit of wisdom, and spirit is capital S, referencing the Holy Spirit. God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, these two things are two things that came about, as he says in verse 18, having your hearts enlightened. So I want to show you this. This phrase here, having your hearts enlightened, is referring to something that has already happened. This is referring to something that happened in the past. Now here's what's really cool, and we talked about this the last few weeks. This phrase here, having your hearts enlightened, is written in the passive voice which I told you last week, which means it's not something we did. We didn't enlighten our hearts. It's something that God did. We received it. So God did it. But here's what's also cool to me. This is not only written in the passive voice, but it's written in the perfect tense. And here's what the perfect tense means. I've told you this before. Perfect tense is something that refers to something that happened in the past, but watch this, but is producing a state of being in the present. 
Let me say it again. Something that happened in the past, but it didn't just happen there. It happened at a point in time, but watch this. It's continuing to produce something now. It's continuing to produce a state of being now. Meaning, it happened there, but it's still happening now. And this is why I love that we call it perfect tense. It's the idea that it's gonna keep happening until you're perfect. And this is what's really cool. God is so committed to us being holy, being like him, that he didn't just work back then, but what he worked in back then, that rhymed, I didn't even mean it to, but what he worked in back then, he's still working in now. So here's what's cool. Paul, in his prayer, just agrees with what God is doing. Having have your hearts enlightened, Paul says, I am praying that God may continue to give you this spirit of wisdom and of revelation. See, he did it then. In fact, for a reference verse, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Again, quickly. Paul, same guy, says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, so this is a Genesis 1 reference, has shown in your or our hearts. Watch this. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another sandwich. I mean, another big, meaty sentence. What is Paul saying? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is describing what he's talking about in verse 18. When your hearts were enlightened. Look at the word enlightened. In the middle of it is the word light. And in the same way, when God created, in the beginning, it says, Genesis 1-1, God said, let there be what? Light. And there was light. In the same way, Paul says, that's what he did in you. He said, in your darkness, God said, let there be light. Let me say it like this. God turned the lights on so that you could see. And when he turned the lights on so that you could see, what did you see? You saw your sin. You saw that you needed to be saved. You saw Jesus as a savior. You confessed and repented of your sins and you were saved. But watch this. You would have never done that hadn't he turned the lights on. You would continue to have walked around in the dark. And this is what's really cool. This word here, shine, is literally the Greek word, lampo. L-A-M-P-O. What English word do you think comes from, we got, that comes out of that word? Lamp, you guys are so smart. And what, you ever thought about words like, why do we call it lamp? Lamp, 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 lamp. That's a weird word. And what does a lamp do? Shines, right? And back in the day, we used to have to go over to the lamp and turn the knob. 
or push it in. Then somewhere I think like in the 90s, they had the touch thing, you could touch it. And then those of us that watch infomercials, they came out with the clapper. Remember that? <laughs> Woo! And I mean, it just blows our minds. You're like, hold on. I could turn on a lap through sound? And now we got these smart things called Alexa and Alice. And we're like, Alexa, turn on lamp one. You realize that's the closest you'll ever be to being like God? Because you just said, let there be. And it was. Yeah. Now, I don't get down with all that smart stuff because I don't like all that stuff listening to me. Because you know it does, all right? But, but, that's a good example of what God did in you. But here's the difference. God didn't have to say, Alexa. God didn't have to have a power company or a light bulb, or a lamp. See, I said, it's close to being like God, but you need all that stuff to turn a light on. God doesn't. He can just say, let it be, and it is. And you know what's even crazier? After our Thursday night gathering, and I, had, I thought, I'd, I couldn't remember if I'd heard this, but I was talking to one, a uh, couple that goes to our church, and here's what's amazing. We have now studied at the moment of conception through fluorescent lights that when the sperm fertilizes the egg, there's an explosion, these zinc particles of light. It's almost like it's the same God. Which is why we believe, biblically speaking, that life begins at conception because it's at that moment, watch this, light is the evidence of life. And what Paul says here is God said in the darkness of your heart, let there be light. And at that moment, you saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And now, in Ephesians 1, what he's saying is he is praying that God would keep doing that, that God would keep giving you light to see. And here's what's really cool. He says, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That word there, revelation, is literally the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our English word apocalypse. It's the same word that the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, I tell you this all the time, there's no S on it. It's not plural, it's singular. Because it's not, watch this, it's not just the revelation of what is to come, it's the revelation of Jesus. And here's what I want you to see. The word revelation means God making known something that was previously unknown. Like if you're in the dark, you don't know. We even talk about that colloquially. I was in the dark. I didn't know. But when God turns on the light, now you know. 
Here's one of the things that trips me out about Christians. Everybody wants to know what's gonna happen at the apocalypse, in the end times. And we'll preach on the book of Revelation, Lord willing, here soon. In fact, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine this week. He was asking my opinion on some things about the events of what are going to happen. And there's a lot of misconceptions. Metaphorically speaking, there's a lot of people in the dark on it. And people read that book of Revelation, and it's wild, man. Dragons and all this stuff and heads and creatures and people like, huh? And, and, and this is what's crazy. People are like, I read it literally. Yeah, but it's literally metaphor. <laughs> right? So, but here's what I'm trying to say to you. What trips me out about Christians is they think that that's all there is to know. Like, that's the only revelation that they need God to give them. And I'm not saying we shouldn't want to know that. Here's what I'm saying to you. This entire book is revelation. Not just one of them in it. This entire book is revelation. In fact, this entire book is God's self-revelation. This is what he has made known that was previously unknown. He's now made it known. And so we should ask God to reveal, to make known to us in our hearts what he's already made known. And I think we would be far better off if we quit speculating about the end times and started asking God to let us know everything that we are and have in Christ. Because see, that's what Paul says. He says, so that you might know the hope to which he has called you. You might know the hope. Look at this, he goes on, verse 18 and 19. I love this. What is this hope we are to know? Check this. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? Preposition, who believe according to the working of his great might, he's working, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. See, watch this. There's more we need to know, not about just the end times, there's more that we need to know about who this Christ is so that we can have hope in this present darkness. So here's the connection I want you to see. If you are lacking in hope, it's because there's some things you don't know. We say it like this, there's some things you're still in the dark on. There's still some things you don't know. And Paul was praying for the church of Ephesus that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him so that they might know the hope. And what's the hope? This immeasurable greatness. The riches 
of this glorious inheritance. Let me say it like this. There's a lot of time, a lot of things you can spend your time on that might let you know something but aren't gonna produce any hope. There are things like mindlessly scrolling, scrolling through social media. You're gonna know some stuff after that, aren't you? What you're gonna know is humanity's dumb. That's what you're gonna know. Right? And, and this too has now been scientifically proven. One of the biggest reasons why we are the most anxious generation ever, it's because we know all this. So let me ask you this. After you spend three or four hours scrolling, do you just feel more hopeful about life? <laughs> feel hopeful? I mean, used to, we got our news, you know, like at night, one time a day. Now it's 24-7. And listen, I'm not saying that's necessarily all bad because there are things that are happening. I mean, just like it happened over this weekend, Israel getting attacked. That's good to know so that we can pray for them, this evil, evil attack that happened on Shabbat, on Sabbath, at the end of a holiday. Evil. But if we go down this wormhole, and this is where people are like, they try to tie all that stuff to the end times. Did you know? No, I didn't know that. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be up on current events. We should. Here's what I'm saying, though. Do you have a ratio of the amount of time that you spend knowing that versus the amount of time that you spend knowing this? Because one of them are going to make you a more hopeful human being. And the other will make you a more anxious one. See, Paul, I love how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. Not 1 Corinthians, sorry. 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the, it's the text that I preach at every Christian funeral where Paul says, I don't want you to grieve. He's talking about those that have died in Christ. He says, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Have no hope. And what he's talking about there is Christians are the only group on the planet that have hope in knowing that death doesn't have the final word. How do we know that? Because he told us in verse 19, the immeasurable power, the immeasurable, I mean, sorry, the immeasurable greatness of his power, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. What is it that he worked in Christ Jesus? What is that power? He brought him back from the dead. That's power, y'all. He brought him back for them dead. And, and this is my argument. This is my line of reasoning with any person who doesn't believe in Jesus. It's like, okay, let's forget all the other stuff you've heard. Let me ask you one question. Are you gonna die? Yes. Do you know what's gonna happen to you? No. Okay, so you have faith because you don't know. So you have faith, I have faith. Okay, let's just agree on that. But I have faith in a guy who came back from the dead and never died. He's alive right now. 
You have faith that nothing's gonna happen. Here's the problem. You haven't died and figured that out. You can't scientifically prove that. But we can scientifically prove that this dude came back from the dead and he's alive now. He's the only person in human history to ever do that. And this is when people say, well, 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 but other people have died and come back to life. What about Lazarus? Which we all love the story of Lazarus. Do you know how bad it must have been for Lazarus? Homeboy had to die twice. I mean, he was dead, like dead, dead. And obviously, theologically, he was probably with God. And, and Lazarus is up there kicking it with God. He's like, whoa. And God's like, well, don't get too excited. Jesus has got to show that he has power over death. So you going back, what? Yes, Lazarus came back to life. Yes, there are people that die and because of modern medicine come back to life. But you want to know what happens to every single one of those people, Lazarus included? They die again. And they did. And I'm not trying to make light of it. Here's what I'm trying to say. Only in Jesus can you have hope that death is under Jesus' control. Right? So don't tell me that you're a person of science and I'm a person of faith. No, you're a person of faith too because you can't observe that one. But here's what I'm saying. We need to know that, don't we? And how we need to know that is we need to ask God. We need to intercede for ourselves and for others. God, would you give us light? And God, would you give us life? In fact, that's my next point. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. We ask God to give light and life. We ask God to give light and life. And I want you to see this. He already said, God having enlightened your heart, God, give light. God, would you shine light in the darkness? Overcome their resistance to you, God. Shine a light in their hearts. Turn the lamps on so that they can see. But the reason why I said life and not power is because I want you to see that his power is life-giving. And it's interesting. You read this. We did this in John, but John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the, anybody know? Light of men. So watch this. Light comes from his life. And when we get lights turned on, we get life. So it goes from life to light, from light to life. He enlightened you. He turned the lights on. You saw it. And now you get life. As Paul says in Romans 8, he says, you have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you who raised Christ from the dead, and therefore he will give life to your mortal bodies. See, his power is life-giving. And we pray and we ask God, God, will you bring light and will you bring life? Because the opposite of life is death, right? The opposite of life is death. And we'll get into this in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive so his power, when he turns the lights on, it brings life. 
And what he's talking about is spiritual life, but then he's referencing also physical life. So here's the hope that we have, that if he's turned the lights on in your life, your destiny is life. That's your destiny. Let me ask you a question. Does that give you hope? And we need some hope, don't we? Already referenced Israel being attacked. I mean, we got a presidential election coming on. We got inflation at record highs that we haven't seen since the 70s. We've got debt. We got all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you just keep, (laughs) right? Or, I mean, this is real cheesy. You can go like this or you can go like this, all right? You can read in the scriptures. I need hope. Because look at verse 21 through 23. I love this. Who raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly place. To check out 21. Far above. Not just above. But when God does something, he does it far above. Who raised him far above. Now listen to this. All rule, all authority, and power, and dominion. I don't think he's necessarily talking about four different parts there, although there's some people. I just think he's trying to describe everything that you can think that is, he's above it. Now watch this. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Check this, verse 22. And, don't you just love them? And, I love conjunctions. And, but, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Listen, one of my biggest uh, issues with the church, and sometimes, yes, our church, is not that bad things are happening in the world. And again, we can go back. We can look at 2020 and COVID and all this other stuff. All of that is going to happen. And again, if you read this book, I've told you this many times, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. The more life grows, this is the analogy that Jesus used. He talks about it like it's a pregnancy, So the more the baby grows in the mother's womb, the more the pain increases, the more suffering that is coming until it reaches its zenith and then life happens. That is what is going to happen. And speaking of revelation, I would just rather prepare you for all the bad instead of promising you you're gonna be missing out on it. I don't think I've done my job if I told you, oh, don't worry, before it gets too bad, he's gonna come up and you gone. I think my job is to prepare you for it. No, it's going to get worse. This is when you're like, I knew I should have stayed home today, but (laughs) listen to me. Listen to me. Everything that is going to happen, not only has he told us it's going to happen, but it's under his feet. So the thing that bothers me is how much Christians flip out over these things happened, freak out over this. 
as if it's a surprise. I mean, the book of Romans says, do not be surprised when suffering comes. James 1, when trials come, do not consider it something strange is happening to you. It is coming, but watch this. But so is he. It's coming, but so is he. And I love this. Far above, that word literally, <laughs> I wrote it down, is hyperano. It's made up of two, uh, two Greek words. Hyper, you recognize. Anyone, anytime we use the word hyper, what does that mean? It's exaggerated, right? Like hyperbolic or hyperbole. This is when someone gives an inordinate response to a small stimulus. Like, how was your day? It was the worst day ever. Well, that sounds like hyperbole, right? But this word, he's not just above, he's hyper. He's far. Uh, one of this, this is what it means. Beyond, I love this one because it's horrible English, but it's great theology. Very chiefest. You're like, what does that mean? You know the word chief? Chief means in charge. This word means very chiefest. He's not just a chief. He's not just the chiefest. He's very chiefest. Oh. He's, watch this. He's not just barely above. Jesus isn't barely keeping his head above water. Right? And if you know anything about life, you realize those of us that are humans, it's a bad thing when our head is below water because we can't breathe. And we say, I'm just, just trying to keep my head above water. Right? I'm just, just trying to keep my head above water. And I'm not saying that's not a real feeling. But here's what we need to say to ourselves when we feel like that. It might be over my head, but it's under his feet. In fact, that's my last point if you want to write it down. What is over our head is under his feet. What's over our head, and we even use that word, I don't know. How was the sermon? I don't know. It was over my head. Right? I don't know. I don't understand it. And yes, that in one level we're, applies to understanding, intellectually speaking, but it also applies to capability. What I'm saying is this. You may feel like you're drowning, but he's not. It's over your head, but it's under his feet because he is far above all rule, all authority. And this is why we can have hope. And listen, I know life is tough. And even though we all know that we're going to die, it says it was appointed for man wants to die. We are all going to die. And that is scary. But how can you face death with hope without Jesus? Because you can say, like Job said, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Why? Because death may look like it won, but it's under his feet. 
And check this, what do we say when we bury somebody? We put them six feet under. Guess what? He used to be under death, but now death's under him. It's under his feet now, y'all. It might be over your head. One day, death is gonna be over your head. You're gonna be six feet under. And it's gonna look like death one. But you can face the grave confidently knowing that what's over your head is under his feet. He is in control. There is nothing that is happening in your life that is not under the sovereign control of our God and Savior. The worst day in history is when Jesus died. But the best day in history is when Jesus rose. And that's our hope. (laughs) And that's your head. He's the head of this church. I'm not the head of this church. He's the head of this church. Trust me, you don't want me as the head. You want him. And the job of the elders, the pastors of the church is to make sure, because watch this, when it's talking about under his feet, it's not just control, uh, power and authority, it's also control, it's subjection. It's under his subjection, it's under his control. And we don't know how it all works, but we know the promise of Romans 8, that God is working all things for our good in his glory. And so that's what we need today. We need to know. We need to know this revelation. We need to know. Again, people say it kind of cheeky. I read the book. I see how, I, I, read, the, I read the end. I see how it ends. You don't have to go all the way to the end. You can go to John. <laughs> right? You can go to Genesis 3.15. You can read the beginning. Genesis 3.15, God gave a promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the Satan, the serpent's head. And that's why Paul says in Romans, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Christ took it. So you need to know that and have the hope of knowing that if you are in him for this reason, you can give thanks. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We are so grateful for Jesus, who not only lived a sinless, perfect life, but died a sinner's sacrificial death, but also rose again and who is alive right now and is seated at your right hand and is far above all power and authority and dominion. And one day he will return and he will give life to our mortal bodies and he will execute judgment. And so God, I pray today that you would give this word Give this light to people so that they can have life in his name. And God, we know there are people here today that maybe for the first time you have turned on the light in their hearts so that they can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And I pray right now, God, you'd save them. They confess and repent and be saved. 
No one looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted in Jesus, but today God has turned the light on and you see your sin and you need a savior, then you can be saved. You can pray with me. You don't have to do this out loud. But it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I can see now. I'm a sinner, so I ask you to save me, forgive me. I'm trusting in Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that with me, and you're in one of our physical locations, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, some next steps, just a Bible. So when they do that, you can put it down. But then those of us that are in Christ, we're in him. I want you to know today for this reason, for this reason, for the fact that you're in him, you can have hope. That no matter how dark it gets in this world, the light is coming. And I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom. You would be wise in your actions. I'm praying that God would give you the revelation. He would make known the knowledge of Jesus so that you could have hope. That though darkness may tarry, light is coming. And I pray that we would dwell on these things, read these things, know these things, believe these things. God, would you help us? We need hope. We need you to turn on the lights. And you're doing that individually in hearts. But one day when Jesus returns, you will do it globally. So we look forward to that day. But until then, God, help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.